Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, will criminal justice reform ever come to Massachusetts? After a fiery community meeting in December, activists are skeptical about Beacon Hill's promises to approve reform legislation this year. Is criminal justice delayed? criminal justice denied in the Bay State. Later in the show, you already know notable contemporary artists like Jackson Pollock, Ai Weiwei, and Jeff Koons. Could five established Boston-based artists join their ranks as household names? We talk with two of the artists awarded this year's James and Audrey Foster Prize at the Institute of Contemporary Art. But first, joining me in the studio... Massachusetts State Senator Sonia Chang-Diaz, who represents the second Suffolk District, which includes parts of Dorchester, Jamaica Plain, Hyde Park, Mattapan, Mission Hill, Roslindale, Roxbury, and the South End. She is also the first Latina elected to the Massachusetts State Senate. Welcome, Sonia. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks for having me. Adam Foss is a criminal justice activist and speaker. He's also a former Suffolk County prosecutor. Hello, Adam. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to have you. And Dan Conley is the Suffolk County District Attorney. Hello, Dan. Hello, Callie. Well, let me jump right in. What got my attention to this subject, even though I'm aware of it, and of course, criminal justice reform is going on across the nation, was that community meeting, Sonia, because I was like, wow, people are really mad about this. What is going on here? And then I heard you speak at the Martin Luther King breakfast, articulating more about the frustration in the delay. So there's been talk of reform in some way or other since about 2012. Why the delay? What's been going on? Well, that's the right question. And I'm not sure I'm the the right person to ask it because I've been pushing for us to do something for, you know, at least half of my eight years now in the legislature and have been told throughout those four plus years, wait, wait, we'll do it next year. We'll do it next term. We'll wait. We'll do it at the end of this CSG study process. And we should say that's the Council of State Government's research uh, data gathering (laughs) initiative. Council of State Governments Mm -hmm. who were invited in by what people sometimes refer to as the big three or the big four uh, on Beacon Hill, being the governor, the Senate president, the speaker, and the chief justice of the Supreme Judicial Court, invited Council of State Governments into Massachusetts to undertake this um, sort of deep dive on uh, criminal justice reform and make recommendations. So I, along with many other legislators and hundreds of grassroots advocates who represent thousands and thousands of base staters, really engaged in a good faith waiting exercise, several rounds of a good faith uh, waiting exercise to have these promises fulfilled. 
And I think that arriving at the end of the CSG process and being told that the report was not going to touch on the issue of sentencing reform and was not meaningfully going to um, incorporate any kind of racial bias analysis into the policy recommendations was the breaking point for people. I mean, I think back to 2012 when we passed the three strikes law in the legislature, which increased lengths of sentence for many crimes, that there was an explicit statement made by leaders on Beacon Hill to the governor that if the governor would sign the bill, that we would come back and do sentencing reform early in the next session. And, you know, here we are five years later, right? And it still hasn't happened. So it was a real tipping point for people, a breaking point for people. And that's why the frustration. And we should say that the council is a nonprofit organization, the one that you referenced, and it's helped 23 other states come to grips with criminal justice reform in their locations. It works by gathering data, having groups, including those the big four, as you say, meet in a strategy session, come up with a state-specific plan, and then go from there. So just so people understand where we are. So this Justice Reinvestment Strategy Group has been meeting for the last year, Adam, looking at what they said were the basic issues that would have come up from the data gathered. Now, that report is yet to come out. But still, Certainly, mandatory minimum sentencing is going to be, should be one of the main things because it's a big issue. Correct. Yeah. Uh, it's something that the, like the senator said, the community activists talk about a lot. The organizers talk about a lot. It's something the federal government was talking about in terms of reform in the omnibus bill of, of last year. And I, I just want to push back a little bit on, on your comment that this started in 2012, the conversation about reform. This this conversation, particularly with the minimum mandatory sentences, has been happening for quite some time, and, and like the senator said, people are sort of running out of patience because things aren't changing with regard to the sentences. Well, why don't you define what we mean by mandatory minimum sentencing? We're really focusing on nonviolent, low-level offenders, but explain what that means. A minimum mandatory sentence is a law that's enacted that if you violate a certain crime, then the penalty for that crime has a minimum amount of time that you will do in jail. If you are convicted of that crime, you will do the minimum amount of time, and that's why it's called a minimum mandatory sentence. And there's no discretion for the judge to go below that sentence. So, Dan Connolly, you've been uh, very adamant about saying it was because we had those mandatory minimums that that's reduced the level of crime in Massachusetts. We should say Massachusetts has one of the lowest rates of incarceration than, I guess, Maine, maybe the only other state. So in that regard, we are doing well, though what happens to those people is another conversation, and how they get there is another conversation. Well, so why, why do you believe that that's so important? Well, I think there's a lot more agreement you know, among the parties than maybe they even appreciate. You know, I also believe that low-level nonviolent drug offenders should not be incarcerated. And the good news is, for the most part, they're not. In Massachusetts, there is no mandatory minimum sentence for possessing drugs. There's no mandatory minimum sentence for even selling drugs below a certain quantity. And back in 2012, actually, there was substantial sentencing reform that occurred. And I believe the senator was a leader in that. I mean, I recall in 2012, the Senate proposed a bill similar to what Sonia has proposed this year, which would be the complete repeal of mandatory minimum drug sentencing laws. The House wanted no part of it. And I actually, it was the district attorneys, and myself particularly, that proposed this middle ground to what I call reformulating the grid, raise the, num the weight of the drugs that triggered mandatory minimum sentences, and substantially reduce by 25% to 33% the time of incarceration. What was important to me as a prosecutor was that for certain discrete crimes, 
Now, remember what we're talking about here. Not, we're not talking about just mandatory minimum sentencing. We're talking about mandatory minimum sentencing for drug trafficking. Okay, and there's a big distinction between a user and a drug trafficker. In Massachusetts, the first rung of, of the triggering of the mandatory minimum sentencing statute is 18 grams. Now, we can discuss whether that's the right number, but just so you know, Callie, that's 180 single doses of heroin. At between $15 and $20 a dose, we're talking about several thousand dollars worth of heroin. There's not a heroin user in America that can have 1,800 individual doses of heroin on him and not use those until the point he is deceased. We're talking about people in the middle of an opioid crisis who are peddling poison in our communities. Now, you know, Sonia and Adam are a lot younger than me. I wish I was, you know, I wish I was in my uh, late 30s. But what I do remember is what the city was like. In 1993, when I first went for political office, we were losing population in Boston significantly year over year. We were under 500,000 people that were living in the city of Boston. In the 1993 election, the number one issue was crime and fear of crime. People were voting with their feet. They were leaving the city of Boston. I was in the homicide unit. I was out answering homicide calls in the late 80s and 90s when we were having 150 homicides in the city. There is an intersection between violence and drug trafficking. So you're it, saying that the mandatory sentence made a difference in it, terms of reducing it, that crime. It's, it's a tool that is very helpful and critical to helping keep violence at a low level. As you point out, we've just fallen again, Massachusetts, from 48th to 49th, even in, in terms of per capita incarceration. At the same time, our crime rate has gone down 26%. Now, even the most left-leaning researchers point to the fact that mandatory minimum sentences, whether it be drugs, whether it be for carrying firearms, whether it be for homicide. And bear in mind, that's not, when you're talking about mandatory minimum sentences, there are a lot of other mandatory minimum sentences that are absolutely critical to the public safety. Keeping these tools in the prosecutor's toolbox is critical to maintaining the public safety. Today, we are one of the safest big cities in America, and our population is about to break 700,000. So that doesn't happen unless you have a safe city. Okay, so I'm just curious about why a judge couldn't make that determination. So a judge can look and say, all right, you're not a drug trafficker, you're a drug user, or you are a drug trafficker, and so therefore I'm throwing the book at you. That's what would give him some, not having that, that mandatory sentence allows the judge some leeway. Why do you think prosecutors are the only people that can make that judgment? Well, I think the legislature has made that decision. Mm. Sonia's colleagues and legislatures before them, they have decided that, look, for certain discrete crimes, we as the people's representatives don't want judges to go below this. Murder, one and two, unlawfully carrying a firearm certain sexual offenses against children, multiple drunk driving offenses. They don't want judges to have full and unfettered discretion in these cases. And yes, drug trafficking falls into that area. See, okay, back on, I, I, want you, I want to get Adam in here because, Adam, you've done a whole TED Talk on why there should be more discretion. Mm -hmm. um, so I just want you to respond. Um, <laughs> I agree with a lot of what the district attorney is saying. However, I, I take issue with the idea that we are safer because of minimum mandatory sentences, because we're not talking about 
the Scarfaces of the world that we put away with minimum mandatory sentences. I don't think anybody in this room has a problem with using that tool to get the top tier guys that are out here dealing the drugs. One of the minimum mandatory sentences that we have not talked about is the enhancement that we use for school, school zone violation. That's a minimum mandatory sentence that was part of the criminal justice reform back in 2012, which shortened the, shortened the range in terms of distance from a school or park that you could be caught in. But it's still a tool that is used often with a lot of low-level people who are selling drugs, a lot of low-level people who are possessing with the intent to distribute drugs. It's just something that people are charged with. And with the firearm statute, I know that a lot of people in the community, while it is certainly a crisis, while it's certainly something needs to be done, treating everyone who carries a firearm like the same, whether it's a person who is a gang kid with the intent to hurt somebody with that firearm, or if it's a young person who's afraid of their own neighborhood and they're carrying it for protection, to say to both of those people, you're going to jail for 18 months, does not make the community safer on the back end because this one person who was carrying it for safety might never use it. And now they're going to have a 18-month sentence plus a felony conviction for a firearm on their record and have to deal with that for the rest of their life. We're not talking about the people who are in jail. We're not talking about the big-time dangerous people. We're talking about the people who, to avoid minimum mandatory sentences, plead out to something different or do something that they wouldn't otherwise because they're afraid of the impact of that sentence, and now they're on probation with felonies, and, and that criminal record carries them around, which is great social cost to everyone. I think the discretion does not need to be shifted from the prosecutors, but I think that we need to talk honestly about what the minimum mandatory sentences are doing to our communities in 2017. I think Adam worked in the office, Adam, and I think, I hope you'll agree with me that, I mean, if, if we enforced to conviction every young individual in this county who was charged with selling drugs in a school zone, they would be triple bunked down at the Suffolk County House of Correction. They have fewer than 500 people down there because you know that our office, particularly over my entire tenure, has been very reluctant to enforce the school zone statute. And we don't. In fact, I think the last time we looked at it was 60 times over 1,500 or 2,000 arrests for that charge. So we, I would say, and I hope you would agree with me, I see you nodding, that you know we in our office anyways have exercised our, our discretion with really tremendous precision when it comes to, to these offenses. Now, with respect to the unlawfully carrying a firearm, again, I will go back to what was going on in this city in the 80s and 90s and, and so forth when 150 individuals a year were being killed by guns and another 300 were being shot by guns. And today, the numbers are 25% of what they were. So it's not the only reason, but it is an important tool and we as prosecutors, and I think you, when you were working in the office and you had a chance to look at a defendant, okay, you knew that defendant and what his, you know, propensity to violence was and what was going on in the community a lot better than most, if not all, the judges that you appeared before. So, so you were in a better position to make that decision. I want to jump in on something that the DA just said, which is that it, it is a large logical leap. The fact that we have reduced crime since the 90s, that that's attributable to mandatory minimum policies. And the DA is right, right? This was a decision by the legislature and we should own responsibility for that. But I think what we're saying now is that we should recognize the error in that policy and that it hasn't demonstrated its impactfulness in terms of 
increasing safety in communities, it costs a boatload of money, right? We are, you, me, all, every taxpayer in the state is paying upwards of $50,000 a year to lock up every single person that we have incarcerated right now in Massachusetts. People are horrified when they hear that number, particularly people in my district who are desperate, right, for better and more access to services that they know are going to do better for their communities, right? 70% of people who are sitting in jails and prisons in Massachusetts right now never graduated from high school. 70%, seven zero, right? Mm-hmm. I just want to make sure people mm-hmm. don't hear that it's one seven. Mm-hmm. And so that's a big black eye for us currently, but also I think it points to what are some of the other strong contributing factors to the improvement in crime since the 90s, right? We've done a lot of things differently since the 90s. And we didn't start, I mean, if you dial it back even a few decades further, we are locking up in Massachusetts now three to five, I think I heard the chair of the Judiciary Committee say today, five times as many people as we locked up in the mid-1970s in Massachusetts. We are not five times worse as a people in Massachusetts than, than we were in the 70s. And what are we getting for all of that financial cost and all of that human cost? And I, I would submit to you, and I, I represent the second Suffolk district, many neighborhoods in Boston that are highly impacted by violent crime. You know, it runs from the South End through Jamaica Plain, Roxbury, Dorchester, Mattapan, High Park. If mandatory minimums and general mass incarceration policies, because it's not just about mandates, right. were working were really a a big contributing factor to keeping people safer, I would be first in line to support them because crime is an issue for my constituents. But when I talk to my constituents and I go out, you know, to campaign door to door at election time, I can go literally whole city blocks where I don't talk to a single household where someone isn't impacted by the criminal justice system. And people understand in a very real and personal way the generational toll that these mass incarceration policies are taking on communities. And it's a kind of violence that we are doing to those communities when we are taking mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters away from the family unit, eroding the strength of that family, taking support systems away from children who then run into a whole host of problems at school, right? And it starts the cycle all over again. People understand the violence that it's doing to their community. And that's why you see so many folks from communities of color pleading with the legislature to do away with these policies. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me are Massachusetts State Senator Sonia Chang-Diaz. You just heard her. Former Suffolk County Prosecutor Adam Foss and Suffolk County District Attorney Dan Conley. I know we spent a lot of time on this mandatory minimum sentencing because that's a big chunk of what we're talking about when we say criminal justice reform. But I'm just trying to understand, you know, we're waiting on the report from the nonprofit group. But it seems to me that there's, you know, there's a broader spectrum of other things to support this. And one of the things that one of the statistics that I read that just startling to me is that people with previous convictions are responsible for three quarters of new sentences. So that means that people are circling. It's just a big circle back and forth because they can't get out. They can't get out of the system. So there has to be some kind of way to sort of break this system, Adam. I mean, we're at a point now where. You know, the Colt brothers, that's not people that folks would think are interested in criminal justice reform because they're ultra conservative. But they've been pushing this for the last, you know, several years, trying to get a national response to this. So what should we be doing in Massachusetts to move this along? I think we need to expand the conversation first past minimum mandatory sentences. And I just want to point out something that the DA said about my experience in the the DA's office. 
And if there was a policy that when somebody was charged with a school zone that we just weren't going to use, we just weren't going to use the school zone law, then I would agree with sort of that the, the expression that we used a lot of discretion in doing that. We used the school zone up until the time when somebody made a, a plea bargain. We didn't take anybody to trial on the school zone. I, I know that because we're afforded more discretion. But I remember lots of times in my career where, where somebody was looking at the school zone or taking a plea, and those are the folks that are cycling back through because of mm-hmm. these convictions. So low-level nonviolent is something that we've been talking about for a long time. The, the 13th talks a lot about it. Michelle Alexander talks about it. 13th is a documentary by Ava DuVernay, which is on Netflix. And a lot of folks mm-hmm. are, are focusing on that group for the reform efforts. Everybody in this room is a low-level nonviolent offender. At some point in our life, we did something that was illegal, either in college or when we were teenagers. And so focusing on that low-hanging fruit isn't going to do the trick. We need to talk about these people who are multiple offenders, and we need to talk about people who are committing violent offenses, especially young people who are committing violent offenses, knowing what we know about adolescent brain development and so forth. We need to think about bail reform. We need to think about prison reform and reentry reform, parole, all of these things. We talk about the criminal justice system as this one big monolith, but it's actually 15 or 20 systems that are trying to compete for budget dollars. We need to really expand the conversation and think about, are we going to continue sending everybody that carries a gun to jail for 18 months, no matter what? Are we going to continue to look at everybody who commits a violent act as somebody who deserves a violent act sentence? Are we going to continue to hold people on bail because we're afraid that they're not going to come back even though they don't have enough money to get out on $100. See, the real concern I have about Adam's speech and rhetoric on this is that it's really defendant-centric. You heard not a single word mentioned about the victims of violent crime in, in Adam's discussion there. And I'm sure it was an oversight on his part. But it's all about keeping our communities safe. I believe that mandatory minimum sentences clearly have had an impact, but it's not just me. I'm mean, quoting from the most recent Pew report. Mm-hmm. They say, this is the lowest level of crime that we've seen since the 1960s. And they, they give a number of reasons, more effective policing, the waning of the crack cocaine epidemic, the spread of anti-lock devices in cars, so fewer cathex, more use of electronic payments, and the increased incarceration of high-risk offenders. And this is what we do. We are smart on crime. We've been smart on crime for my entire tenure. We focus our attention on high-risk offenders with precision, and it has paid off. The city is one of the safest big cities in America. But I don't think we're talking about high-risk offenders, right? We're talking about low-level They don't go to jail, Callie. They don't go go to jail. It's not the same thing as mandatory minimums, Mm. right? I mean, we're not saying don't prosecute people. We're not saying don't lock people up. But we're saying let's... You know, we have this whole group of, and this is different from what Adam's suggesting, mm. I'll, you know, confess, but mm. we have this whole group of people that we hire and we pay as a commonwealth called judges. Mm. And we have a judiciary because we recognize the wisdom of treating cases on a case-by-case basis, taking into consideration the facts of, e- of, of each situation. And when the facts merit it, if you have a high-impact player who's doing horrible, violent things on a repeated basis, yes, throw the book at them, right? I Again, that's my community. Those are my constituents that are being impacted. And I hope we are vigorous in prosecution. But to take discretion out and just say, no matter what the circumstances of the case are, no matter whether you were trafficking because you were supporting a habit yourself, no matter if you are being charged with intent to distribute because you are a 20-year-old who we failed in the education system and you have no job prospects other than dealing, you know, none, and this is your first time, um, your first event, 
when you take that discretion out, it is to the detriment of justice. It's just to the detriment of the taxpayer and it is to the detriment of neighborhood safety. So let me just say this. I, I want, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that there are some restorative justice that's right about focusing on victims going on in this state with some great success. Well, in, in its infancy. Yes. And, you know, I yeah. just uh, we just created a, uh, a new program for juvenile diversion that will con- contain a, um, you know, an element of restorative justice. If victims Which, are willing to participate. To it means that victims come to the table, also the perpetrators come to the table, and the victims get to really tell to the face of the people that committed the crime to them what they felt and what they experienced and the great harm to them. And the perpetrator has to acknowledge his crime. It involves law enforcement officers and others who are trained counselors. But it's been very effective as a part of a it criminal be, justice reform. Uh, but, so. Kelly, if I may, back in the 1990s, the Boston Bar Association, the Mass Bar Association came together and urged the legislature to create the Sentencing Commission, which they did. And if you go back and you read some of the materials there, the reason why they did that, created a Sentencing Commission, because sentences were all over the place. Defendants who had committed like crimes in similar circumstances were receiving disparate sentences. So they proposed a set of guidelines so that there would be some, at least some level of uniformity, judge to judge. Now, those guidelines were never passed by the legislature. I don't even know the reason why they're often referred to in court. But the reason why we have mandatory minimum sentences, where the legislature said, look, in certain cases, we don't want judges to go below this number, is to promote some level of consistency between like defendants. Do you remember? A few- I don't think anybody here is arguing that, well, right? I, I'm not. I just want to understand why a low-level defender can't be... I mean, they get caught up in this system. That's what we're talking about. Well, let me tell you about you a low-level offender who committed rape out in Stanford. Okay, he was a swimmer. I would not consider that a low-level defender. Let me just say, but well, go ahead. you know what? He, he had no criminal <laughs> okay, record. Yeah, he was in yeah. one of the most prestigious colleges in America. He raped one of his classmates, who was highly intoxicated and couldn't consent. The judge sentenced him to probation. Yes, and All that right, would make there, me crazy. First, yeah. the Stanford community, then California, I've then the country. This. Yes. Okay, were up in arms. Now, Jerry Brown, who's probably the most liberal governor in America, quickly the legislature in California passed a law, mandatory minimum sentence for someone who rapes somebody who is in a state of essentially unconsciousness. And Governor Brown said, I'm signing AB 2828, that's the bill, because I believe it brings a measure of parity to sentencing for criminal acts that are substantially similar. You get no argument from me. I have written about that and preached about that a million times. So there's a value I don't consider that a low-level offense. So I'm trying to— We don't have mandatory minimum sentences, Kelly, for low-level offenses. Shoplifting. Complete discretion for the judge. Bail. Complete discretion for judges. Selling drugs below a certain weight. Complete discretion for judge unless it's a second offense and unless we indict the defendant. If we decide not to, and Adam will tell you that many times we don't, they plead those cases out to probation or less. So it's very important for your listeners to understand mandatory minimum drug sentences apply to drug traffickers. Now, if 18 grams is too low, if 1,800 hits of heroin is too low to implicate mandatory minimum sentencing, then maybe we should talk. More people are dying from heroin overdoses than gunshot, homicide, and car death combined. Now is not the time for us to, to go easy 
on drug traffickers. All right, let's no, get on, the users on, what let they me, need. Let, let me let Sonia respond to this. That's Dan Conley, by the way, who is the Suffolk County District Attorney, and as you can hear, says minimum mandatory sentences are working. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say I think you can choose many anecdotal instances of an egregious case that really pushes the public's you know willingness to give discretion to judges, but. Is it about definition? Can we define it in ways that then, therefore, this would be something that could be in the legislative reform package? I think one of the things that's important to good lawmaking and being a good legislator is having some humility about what are all of the, you know, can we anticipate every infinite permutation of how a law will be applied? And our founders, right, in their wisdom, anticipated that we could not anticipate everything. And that's why we have a judiciary. Because not every case is the same and not every case is going to be these egregious outlier situations. And you are going to have, you know, lots of gray area in there where sometimes people are trafficking to support a habit or any number of other circumstances I can't think of right now. But that I really want, you know, I as a taxpayer and I as a person who care about justice, I want a judge to be in there playing the role of the person who's taking it all into consideration and a jury for that matter. And it's just, you know, I think it's not the role that we have prosecutors for. I'm glad that we have prosecutors, right? I want tough prosecutors. I want them to show discretion as well. But I think the judge is integral to this process. So let me ask this question. Adam, you can take it off and then we'll we'll go from there. If mandatory minimum sentences was not in the criminal reform package that gets passed, is that a good move or not at this point? Is it a good move? Any, any move towards reform is a good move. Mm-hmm. However, people deserve something that looks more like reform than it does a concession. I don't know what a criminal justice reform bill looks without some sentencing reform in it. That's what people are, have really been asking for and striving for. I think that there are certainly reform measures that can be made that would not require such an omnibus bill that would take up sentencing reform, such as bail reform. Bail reform is, is a major issue. Mm-hmm. Probation violations and the like, which are problematic for people who are pleading out to avoid minimum mandatory sentences and then going to jail. There are other things that can happen, but again, the public is is tired of waiting around for the sentencing reform that they've been promised. If I can just return to something that the DA said about uh, an oversight that I made, all of the commentary that I'm making about criminal justice reform is as a citizen uh, of this Commonwealth and a former DA. I live in Dorchester. I'm surrounded by people who are impacted by the criminal justice system. My, com- my commentary is not defendant-centric. It's citizen-centric. The people who are impacted by the criminal justice system in this community are the same people who are also impacted by violent crime. And like the victims here who live in Dorchester, Roxbury, Mattapan, a lot of the jurisdictions where the senator is the legislator, uh, the victims want to see something different out of our criminal justice system. This is not the 1990s anymore. It was not all the, the sentencing laws. And in fact, President Bill Clinton has even ad- admitted that it wasn't just the tough on crime era that caused the drop in crime in, in this city and others. Victims don't want prosecutors to be sending people to jail for these offenses anymore. They want more rehabilitation. They want more employment opportunities, more education opportunities, because the victims and the people who are the defendants in these cases who return to the communities that they came from all deserve something different than what we've been giving them. So in, Mass- in, in Suffolk County, anyways, about 3 to 4% of the charged defendants will receive a term of incarceration at the end of their criminal justice process in that particular case. So it means that 96 to 97% receive something less. 
You know, when I first became the district attorney, there were two drug courts in Suffolk County, and they were both on life support. The two judges asked me to please reinvigorate them. I did. I expanded them. There are five now. There was no mental health court. There was no homeless court. There was no veterans court. There was no diversion, really, other so, than so informal So you're saying there's diversion. been a lot of reform. Oh, tremendous yeah, amount right. of reform. Mm -hmm. But, you know, prosecutorial discretion is sometimes viewed as a, in a negative light by some people who put themselves out forward as reformers. A prosecutorial discretion is almost universally exercised for the benefit of the defendant. When we drop charges, when we reduce charges, when we don't charge at all, this is exercises of prosecutorial discretion that benefit defendants. There are areas, I believe, that we can find common ground. Adam mentioned one, bail reform. That's a decision in the exclusive jurisdiction of judges. Other than maybe homicide, which I believe we can ask for, for someone shot with first degree and whether they be held without bail. Other than that, that's a complete judicial jurisdiction. Why is that happening? Are there other... This is areas that we can find common ground. Yeah. I'm just trying to figure out, is there a way to get some movement on this? Adam says yes, without even though sentencing is a, a critical part. Sonia, what do you say? You're saying there already have been reforms. Let's build on that. Well, That's what you're so, saying. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, I would agree with what the DA just said last night, and we should celebrate it, right? There is a lot of area of common ground, common cause, right? The bail reform, recidivism, reentry services, absolutely. And I think that's what you'll see, you know, on the back end of the system, so-called, right? The reentry stuff is what I expect to see in the CSG report when it's released. But I want to say in no uncertain terms that passing a quote-unquote criminal justice reform package that does not include sentencing reform, I would consider the worst kind of negligence by the legislature. You cannot meaningfully talk about criminal justice reform without including some serious facet of sentencing reform. Because, again, like both of us, we can all cite our outlier cases, right? This horrific crime that didn't get sentenced vigorously enough. I've got moms who have lost multiple children to gun violence in my district who want to see mandatory minimums reform because they understand that it, too, is doing a violence to their community. Um, so everyone, you know, can talk about how we're advocating for victims here. But the undeniable facts are that we are locking up three to five times as many people as we used to several decades ago. And sure, are we better than other states? Absolutely. And we should, you know, we should take some credit for that. But we should have a, you know, not a, a, a narrow worldview and remember that when we consider ourselves relative to the rest of the world, we are among the top 15 percent of incarcerators. If Massachusetts were a nation, there is a better way to do this. And if we don't capture that in a reform bill, it is a huge missed opportunity, and we're not going to get another bite at this apple politically for several years, and we should be real with people about that. Yeah. I'm going to have to leave it there, and I truly wish I'd given you an hour for this so that I could have so many more things I'd like to discuss about it. But I think for our listeners, we've gotten an essence of where some of the disagreements lie and where some of the commonalities do and how big a problem this is and how serious one is. So I thank you all for coming in to um, talk to me about it. Thank, thank you, you all. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you. All right. Sonia Chang-Diaz is a master. Massachusetts State Senator who represents the 2nd Suffolk District. Adam Foss is a criminal justice activist and a former Suffolk County prosecutor. And Dan Conley is the Suffolk County District Attorney. Coming up, two artists chosen for this year's James and Audrey Foster Prize exhibit at the Institute of Contemporary Art. They join us to talk about their work and the city of Boston's spotlight on their art. That's up next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. <laughs> 